1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This episode continues our maritime disaster series and we're looking at the Empress of Ireland. Canada's Titanic is what it's known as. This was a large and splendid passenger liner which sank in the St Lawrence River on the 29th of May 1914, resulting in the loss of over a thousand souls. Now, this was a vessel with adequate lifeboats, watertight compartments, and yet she foundered in just 14 minutes, having been driven into by a Norwegian collier, which punched an enormous hole into her side around midships, allowing some 60,000 gallons of water into the hull. To find out more, I spoke with the brilliant Dan Conlin, curator at the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is Dan. Dan, Empress of Ireland, let's start at the beginning. Why was she built?
0: Empress of Ireland was a creation of the Canadian Pacific Railway, um, a legendary transportation network in Canada, um, which in some ways helped build the country of Canada. The Transcontinental Railway, uh, completed in 1885, that convinced the Western Province of Canada to join the Confederation and not join the United States. And the CPR was a very ambitious company. Uh, they had excellent capital from British investors and uh, they um, uh, not, were, were not satisfied with being just a railway company. They wanted to be a shipping empire as well. They built amazing um, shipping lines across the Pacific, uh, superb connections with Japan and China. And then um, they had this Transcontinental Railway, and then they wanted um, a transatlantic network to put them together with uh, what they called the world's greatest transportation system. So they um, they bought a couple of smaller ocean liners, but then in 1906, they decided to sort of uh, build um, two um Uh, you know, sizable ocean liners to sort of uh, enable themselves to uh, connect ships to trains to the Atlantic to Pacific and across North America. And um, uh, Empress of Ireland was sort of custom designed for that service. Um, CPR deliberately chose to not go to New York. New York was expensive and uh, and, uh, very competitive. They decided to use the St. Lawrence River, have their ship's dock at Quebec City, which gave them certain advantages, um, and um, Empress of Ireland or sistership Empress of Britain were custom built for that. Um, the St. Lawrence, if you look at a map, goes deep into the heart of North America, and that allowed the Canadian Pacific to go after not only Canadian immigrants, but also Americans headed to the, to the, to the Midwest. And uh so they built these ships uh named after the desirable pools of immigrants of the era. They wanted Irish, Scottish and English immigrants, so hence Empress of Britain and Empress of Ireland. And um they pitched these uh this pair of new ships at uh, at cementing their place in the in the world's uh, liner circles.
1: Which ports did they sail from in the UK?
0: They mainly focused out of uh Liverpool. They kind of the immigrant uh hub um, they did, For some of their later bigger liners, they would do Southampton, but Liverpool was their kind of the bread and butter trade. Uh, so it was kind of Liverpool and uh, then across the Atlantic uh, for most of the year to Quebec City. Uh, when the St. Lawrence fro- froze up, they would then have their liners uh, call it Halifax where Pier 21 is located, where I work. And then um,
1: from Halifax, how did people get, get inland? land? How, what was the next leg of their journey?
0: Uh, well, um, Halifax has excellent rail-to-ship connections, so they would board um, um, a, a couple of transcontinental lines that begin in Halifax, um, uh, or um, if they were landing at Quebec, they would uh, pick up the uh, the trains there. Uh, you almost always change trains in Canada and Montreal, and then you would sort of switch to your western westbound trains. Um, and um, yeah, that was the that was the linkage. Um, that route using the St. Lawrence, CPR really kind of pushed that one as not only getting you closer to your future home in Western Canada or the Midwest of the Americas, but also they like to say only four days on the open ocean, as in uh, most ships uh, at that point were taking six days to cross the Atlantic. Uh, CPR like to remind your folks a day and a half will be in the sheltered and safe waters of the St. Lawrence River which was a nice pitch for people worried about seasickness, but the St. Lawrence, as was proved in the sinking of the um, Empress of Ireland, is not the safest body in the world. Busy. Busy and prone to funny weather. Yeah, it's uh, it's busy, uh, much and narrow, or much narrower than the channel, and uh, prone to currents, sandbars, and some really um, uh, deadly fogs. And um, the fogs, in particular, um, uh, it sort of uh, played a critical role in Empress Ireland's final demise in uh, nineteen fourteen. Yeah. Um, but for, while it was going, CPR had an amazing um, profit returns on their ships and their trains. Um, they uh, they were a real player in the North Atlantic right up until the 50s and 60s, uh, and they, they were kind of very shrewd at sort of making money everywhere going. Um, they would uh, sell an immigrant family in Europe a ticket to cross the ocean on a liner, then sell them a train ticket to cross uh, to, to their new lands in Western Canada. CPR owned millions of acres in Western Canada, so they were often sh- selling immigrant uh, families land. And then they would have the business of this uh, farming family in a place like Alberta or Saskatchewan for the rest of the life of the families. So uh, CPR had this integrated colonization uh, uh, um, thing going. And they even had their own colonization department in the UK putting out posters and setting up exhibits, um, all all making money on this vast uh, uh, transatlantic immigration. And this was the boom years for people coming to Canada. Uh, 1914 marked the all-time peak. We've never exceeded, actually, the number of people who came to Canada that, that year. Um, we'd open up an enormous stretch of lands in Western Canada by disposes- dispossessing uh, Indigenous people. But it just it, it created this huge immigrant uh, opportunity, and um, CPR was, was front and center in it. It's amazing how systematic they were
1: about the whole thing. I mean, I find that very surprising. I slightly assume that people would buy a ticket to get to Canada or the States or wherever, and then they're kind of on their own to muddle their way in through. But there are, you know, it's a huge industry, it sounds like, helping people settle.
0: Yeah, um, it was very integrated and CBR was quick to pitch to immigrants, listen, you know, you book your ship train and and ship and train fare with us. We'll give you a good discount. We have custom train cars built for immigrants um, and uh, you won't be shipped west in an old boxcar or something. And so they uh, they were keen to sort of marshal their resources to really focus on on this and um uh it was it made this company a powerhouse in canada and that's doesn't even begin to 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 uh take into account the luxury hotels they built in the rocky mountains that created tourism there um it was very much an integrated transportation network and this pair of ships that they built in 1906 was a key part in launching that network and the um let's talk about the sort of the
1: quality of the construction was this As far as I understand it, it was for, you know, first class passengers with a great deal of money as well as people who really didn't have much to spend and just wanted to find a new life across the Atlantic. Is that right?
0: Yeah, well, um, they um uh they were certainly um, uh, top of the line ships. You know, they were built uh, on the Clyde. You know, at Fairbanks uh a shipbuilding uh, in that era, where you know um uh, um in the north of England and Scotland, they were turning out. You know, that was the year Lus- uh, Lusitania, Mauritania were built, and um, the CPR ships were built to the same standards. They weren't. As l- they were about half the size of the big four stackers. So these were two stackers coming in just at. Uh, Over 14,000 gross tons, Uh, but they had all the features of a giant luxury liner, just scaled down a bit to make them more economical. So, um, so uh, the dining room aboard um, Empress of Ireland, you know, was this lovely two-deck dining room with a great balcony and a circular um, uh, 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 skylight, um, could seat the entire first-class passenger complement all in one meal. An amazingly luxurious um, uh, oval-shaped music room, beautiful cafe going out on the promenade deck, uh, professional five-man orchestra you know they had all the trappings of deluxe uh, floating palaces uh, uh, traveled but just slightly smaller Um, and then you know kind of uh, notched down for second class um, for third class passengers and that was that was the money making in the uh, part of the transatlantic trade people often forget that when you think of the titanic era ships but the ships got prestige with the first-class passengers. They made their profit with third-class passengers. So Empress of Ireland uh, could um, take 350 in first class, 350 in second class, and up to 1,000 in third class. Wow, wow. And she had had quite innovative third-class accommodation. Uh, She was one of the first uh, ships to have all cabins for people in third class. Uh, Up until 1906, generally in third class, you could expect kind of an open dormitory-style deck, Uh, but uh, all the third-class passengers could get cabins. And they had a kind of neat modular system in sort of slow times of the year. They could take out some of the third-class cabins and expand their express freight areas. So um, so uh, she was really built to sort of 1,000 uh, immigrant passengers uh, a trip. And boy, in, in her career, she Empress of Ireland, before a tragic loss, made 96 crossings of the Atlantic. Wow. Um, uh, brought over 100,000 people to, to, to North America. Um, you know, there's people who've done projections about how many people in Canada today are descended from someone who immigrated aboard uh, Empress of Ireland. And the estimates go into the millions. So uh, so this ship uh, uh, really kind of was a uh, a regular bringer of people to new lives in North America. Mm.
1: Let's just talk a little about her design and construction. So you say she was built in 1906. Yeah. Were there um talk briefly about you know safety at sea and and what what issues were were around at 1906 you know for our listeners this is obviously before the titanic disaster so there, there were lessons to be learned in the future but not necessarily in 1906 um what were the major kind of safety features that built into her
0: well, um, she had the latest tech technology of watertight compartments, which everybody thought would be invincible. So she had a full suite of watertight compartments. Um, she had uh, a state-of-the-art wireless, uh, also the submarine signaling system, which is an underwater signaling system people thought was going to do great things, but it was kind of a bit of ahead of its time. Um, she had um, she used the old Board of Trade uh, figure for lifeboats, so initially it was only fitted with sixteen lifeboats, uh, according to the tonnage requirements. After Titanic's uh, sinking, they hastily doubled that number. Uh, so, so um, by um, by nineteen fourteen, she had over thirty lifeboats. Um, uh, her kind of her technology, um, they, um for the propulsion, they um, uh, went with uh, uh, reciprocating engines. They weren't uh, jumping into the world of turbine engines that Cunard was with uh, Lusitania and Mauritania because uh, tur- uh, turbine engines gave you wonderful speed, but they also burned hideous amounts of coal. And CPR was very careful to make these money-making ships, so she uh, she could do um, uh, uh, 20 knots, um, uh, respectable good speed, but not the 28 knot of the new turbine liners. Uh, but um, you know, by the standards of a day, it was a state-of-the-art vessel that could should be able to handle anything the Atlantic uh, could t- take. Uh, um, but uh, as events um, unfolded, um, uh, it didn't work out. <laughs> no, I mean, let, let's let's take
1: ourselves to uh, that her last voyage. Uh, paint us a picture of, of, of where she was going and what what was going on.
0: Yeah, so uh, May 28th, 1914, um, uh, Empress of Ireland is uh, boarding passengers in Quebec City, uh, beautiful pier right below the lovely Chateau Laurier, uh, the, a bit right below the Chateau Frontenac on the St. Lawrence River, um, voyage number 96, uh, she's about uh, 75% full, always a few less people going eastbound than westbound. Um, uh, uh, but um, lots of folks still, I'm um, almost full in, in, uh, in third class with uh, folks who sort of made it in the new world and were going back to bring relatives uh, back the other way or uh, settle family estates or, uh, you know, attend marriages. Uh, and then sort of a sprinkling of folks in uh, first and second class. Uh, no real celebrities aboard her voyage, uh, which is one reason a lot of people haven't heard of Empress of Ireland. She uh, had a sort of a British member of parliament, Henry Seaton Carr, coming back from big game hunting in British Columbia. And then uh, an actor, Lawrence Irving, returning from a worldwide performing tour. Um, but it was kind of mostly professional folks, business folks, uh, uh, and then these um, uh, sort of uh, newly arrived immigrants heading back to the homeland to sort of settle things. And um, they all board what everybody is expected to be a a voyage like any other, nice mild um, uh, May departure as they go down the St. Lawrence River, mild enough that a lot of people leave their portholes open, which um, it it turns out to be a fateful twist because when uh, she runs into trouble, um, uh, she ends up flooding much more quickly. Um, but voyage down the St. Lawrence River outbound, um, and everything goes usual, uh, a nice uh, music performance. Uh, this ship, um, this voyage was noted for, there's a huge contingent of the Salvation Army uh, Church aboard. There was a big international conference in London uh, that, that spring for the worldwide Salvation Army Church, and pretty much every single Salvation Army leader in, in Canada was aboard this ship. And so they they had a sort of a Salvation Army bands were performing, and then everybody turned in. And um, the ship dropped off her mail at Point Au Pair, which is sort of the last port in the St. Lawrence River, as the river starts to widen open to embrace the Atlantic Ocean. And um, then um, uh, just before 2 a.m., her officers sighted lights from an inbound ship off in the distance. And um, uh, it looked like the two ships were safely a safe distance apart. But as with common with the St. Lawrence River... Uh, just as they caught sight of each other's lights, a really dense fog bane blots in, and neither ship can see each other. And uh, both uh, both bridge uh, uh, officers take what they thought were sensible precautions to pull pull apart from each other. Um, uh, but what they actually do is they, they bring themselves closer together in the fog. Um, Empress of Ireland's officers decided to pass starboard to starboard. They thought they'd made more sense because they were close to the shore. Uh, the in, inbound ship was a Norwegian coal ship. Um, they decided to pass port to port and these maneuvers in the fog when they couldn't see each other brought themselves very close to each other. Uh, so at um, uh, just before 2 a.m. Uh, suddenly the, the horror-stricken officers aboard Empress of Ireland see this big coal ship with a bow that was armor-plated to deal with ice in the St. Lawrence uh, coming right at them. And uh, there's some last distance, last minute maneuvering to try to get out of the way, but uh, the origin ship Storstad uh, then crashes right into the side of uh, Empress of Ireland. Uh, And kind of about the worst possible place, it hits, it, it slices into Empress of Ireland, tearing out a four deck gap uh, right in the engine room uh, taking out the, um, the, the uh, watertight uh, um, uh, bulkhead between the engine room and the boiler room uh, and slices deeply into the ship. Uh, and uh, Empress of Ireland starts to take on enormous quantities of water immediately. And this is the big difference between Empress of Ireland and Titanic. Titanic is a slow motion disaster that an iceberg holds a ship and it takes 2 hours and 20 minutes to sink. Empress of Ireland uh, fills with water on her starboard side and slips under in 15 minutes. It's this incredibly quick, horrible disaster. There's no room for the sort of slow motion heroics and chivalry aboard Titanic. This is a, a deadly fight for survival. And, um, and in the uh, middle of the night, as well. In the middle of the night, when all the passengers are asleep, and uh, it's um, it's a recipe for mass death, and indeed, that's what happens.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Most people just trapped, trapped in, in their in their cabins, in their bunks.
0: Yeah, if um uh, if you look at the death toll aboard Empress of Ireland, um so it's uh, just over thousand thousand and twelve people die. Uh, um very few passengers get out. Uh, in fact, uh, there's eight hundred and forty passengers who die. That's more passengers who died on Empress of Ireland than who died on Titanic. Um, Titanic, they had enough time to get most, but not all, the passengers off. Empress of Ireland, it was just passengers waking up in the dark because the electric lights uh, failed almost immediately, and uh, you had seconds to decide which way you were going to go. Are you going to go for? Are you going to find a porthole or are you going to find a companionway to get up the deck? And then just minutes to to uh, to uh, to try to escape. So the on duty, um, the watch that was on duty, they had a slightly Better chance of escaping because they were all awake and on duty. Um, but um, uh, in 15 minutes, uh, 1,012 people die, um, and uh, in, under horrible circumstances. And there's some just heartbreaking accounts of um, of uh, of uh, of uh, survivors. Um, when we we did a big exhibit about the empress of Ireland at the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 in 2015, we actually had the pajamas of a survivor. A fellow named uh, um, John Langley, and he woke up. He didn't bother to dress, which saved his life. He just uh, went out in, into the um, into the um, uh, um, companionway, up a set of uh, um, a stairs, and with about twenty people behind them, and they found the door to the deck locked. The crew had locked the uh, the the main door to the deck at night as a precaution, so people didn't wander around late at night. But then he's dropped at the head of the stairs in a sinking ship. And he noticed the teenage boy uh, beside him managed to squeeze through a little tiny 18-inch porthole, and uh, John Langley managed to just squeeze through that porthole himself in his pajamas. And then the ship was underwater, um, and he kind of swam to a to a lifeboat and was rescued. Uh, kept those pajamas for the rest of his life, still with the stains <laughs> from the porthole that he'd squeezed through. Uh, but he left behind 20 people trapped in that uh, behind that locked door. And um, there's all kinds of awful stories about uh, about people left behind as as Empress rolled and sank.
1: Yeah, they were his lucky pajamas. I'm surprised he ever slept without them on again.
0: <laughs> well, it's sometimes people keep these. Tales, but, uh, it's got kind of, he had some urgent uh, family business to settle. He was from Ireland and uh, he uh, immediately, you know, bought some more clothes to put over those pajamas and booked the next uh, next uh, eastbound ship. Um, but um, there were some. There were indeed some remarkable uh, survival stories. Uh, one of the most uh, strange is there was one of the stokers aboard Empress of Ireland. William Clark had been a stoker aboard Titanic, and he managed <laughs> oh, no. to survive oh, no. the sinking of Titanic. <laughs> And then he signs on on another sh- unlucky ship, and he survives the sinking of Empress of Ireland. And, um, the, oh, uh, of course, the newspapers can't get enough of him. He yeah. gave a, vague, a great uh, sort of uh, salty sailor's take on the, comparing the two ships. He said, uh, uh, "He said uh, Titanic slowly sank like a sleeping baby. Empress of Ireland rolled like a pig and quickly sank into the mud. And uh, just, you know, just by in terms of comparison, the uh, um uh, uh the brutal violent um, uh, um uh, list and sinking of Empress of Ireland. It was all over in fifteen minutes.
1: Yeah. What a tragedy.
0: Let's talk about the wreck. I mean the ship was obviously there and it and
1: it in, in not very deep water. Is that right?
0: Well um yeah just deep enough to be very dangerous. Uh so <laughs> uh, um uh the um reachable by the hard hack diving suits of the era. And uh, you know, this was an important crack ship. So she had all kinds of valuable stuff aboard. She had um, uh, dozens of, uh, hundreds of bars of silver that were being shipped, you know, just as normal banking from, uh, from Canada to the UK, uh, as well as, you know, a lot of uh, very valuable stuff in, that was in the mail. So they immediately hired hard hat divers to um, to salvage her and the purser stay safe with all the passenger jewelry. Uh, salvage went on for aboard her wreck for, for, um, for uh, months uh, and claimed the lives of several divers. Because it is a very dangerous wreck, it's right at the sort of the um, uh, on the edge of very deep water, and if you fall off that wreck, you fall to your death. And uh, hard hat diving at that depth is full of perils, so it was very kind of risky um, uh, salvage from it. Um, uh, you know, among, among the they found most of the silver uh, and they found also thousands of bits of mail and uh, we had on display in our exhibit mail that had been recovered from the depths of the St. Lawrence River all stamped with this official post office stamp saying uh, salvage from the wreck of Empress of Ireland disregard damage <laughs> and there were these water soaked letters uh, some of them quite, quite interesting letters from immigrants in western Canada writing home to uh, relatives in the south of England about how well their farms were doing etc all plucked from the depth of the lawrence it's amazing the um the ink had, didn't run the ink was
1: stable enough to kind of maintain its legibility
0: yeah letters in the center center of bundles where they're really pushed close together oh, yeah. then the water kind of can't get in and take the ink as, as much away um and you'll you'll see uh, empress of ireland letters there's often a bit of a blurring around the edges but then the, the center just the um pressure of the bundle and, and uh, the water at that depth they were kind of able to uh, to read the letters and this salvage of Empress of Ireland went on for quite a number of years, long after the official salvage. The uh, um, uh, When scuba diving became popular after World War II, Empress was just on the edge of a very risky high adventure scuba dive, and uh, it became quite an attraction for divers over the years to the point where people were kind of plundering a historic wreck and sometimes actually finding human remains. Yeah. So the, um, the Quebec and the uh, Canadian governments uh, created actually a special protected status for Empress of Ireland. So it's now marked by a special buoy that says you can't dive without a permit and it's fairly closely monitored.
1: Yeah. Is there much kind of research and, and um, sort of official dives going on then, or is it largely left alone nowadays?
0: Oh, there are kind of dives by sort of ch- chartered operators who have kind of licenses and uh, um, uh, but it's now kind of carefully monitored and you can no longer remove stuff. Um so the um we had an amazing collection of objects. We have some material from Empress of Ireland in our collection at the Canadian Museum in Empress of Ireland, principally letters and postcards sent from the ship, but the our sister museum in Ottawa, the Canadian Museum of History, they have the world's largest collection of Empress of Ireland stuff. They have stacks of uh, plates and beautiful metalware like a leg of the one of the six pianos that were aboard. Um you know, all manner of kind of beautiful stuff, the wonderful crystal lights that were aboard and so um um the that's now preserved at uh, canada's national museum yeah
1: and what about um the historical research into the ship i i presume that the records are very good and there's um lots of surviving um personal correspondence it, it's probably a playground for a maritime historian isn't it
0: yeah, uh uh been about uh six Canadian books written about the, the, the wreck. Uh, um as an immigration museum, you know, we're very interested in the sort of the window you, the ship gives us on, on immigration. Uh the large numbers of people came 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 to Canada aboard the ship and the all the ties that continue to bind them to uh to their homelands in Europe. Um so they uh yeah, there's been a, quite quite a bit of research aboard the ship. Um, it's helped make make up for the sort of the lack of international attention for Empress. It's kind of this ship killed more passengers than Titanic did, uh, and uh, um, uh, was right up there in the league of really big shipwrecks. But it um, it was um, it, it had the misfortune to sink just before World War One uh you know um uh months later you know the um the the guns were firing in europe and the whole world was convulsed with this global war empress of ireland although she made international headlines with the sinking kind of is pushed from public memory and uh, moreover um she wasn't a ship full of british and american celebrities sleek sinking on her maiden voyage so she never got the the heavy duty popular culture treatment that uh, the titanic did and uh and that uh, that's kind of made her kind of um one of the sort of less uh uh, well known of the really big ocean liner shipwrecks.
1: Yeah, and and wasn't sunk on purpose like Lusitania or or one of the others.
0: Yeah, she kind of she kind of um, uh, the collision with the coal ship in the dead of night and the 14 minute sinking kind of didn't uh, sort of uh, leave room for some of those um, the sort of fatalistic dramas that we tend to uh, to like uh, when we kind of go looking for classic gothic stories of of, of ships sinking.
1: And what about her legacy? I mean, how did she change um, uh, rules on ship construction or rules on navigating? Did did she have a legacy?
0: Well, there was a lot of uh, studies about uh, watertight compartment enhancement. There were stricter rules about sort of closing portholes. But um, they were kind of fairly modest in terms of um, uh, procedural reference. Um, uh, A lot of folks in the shipping industry were quick to note she had plenty of lifeboats but in sinking in fourteen minutes of the thirty lifeboats, they could only they were only successfully able to launch five. That's okay. no par- panacea in terms of uh, survivability. Um, uh, but um, there were some sort of modest safety procedures that were drawn from from uh, Empress of Ireland, which came in very handy with, within a few months because then uh, German submarines started to sink sh- think ships in large numbers. Um, but um, the uh, sort of the um, they. For the Saint Lawrence specifically, they tightened up a lot of the fog procedure regulations. Um, uh, but um, sort of world events kind of moved on. Yeah.
1: Um, and what about the 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 whose
0: fault was this? <laughs> Who was blamed? That's what I want to know. Was it this
1: armored coal ship which seems to have had a ram on its bow, or was it the uh, the captain of the Empress?
0: Well, um, uh, that was hotly disputed in 1914, and it remains actually quite hotly disputed today about uh, who made what wrong decision in the fog. Um, the um, inquiry put the official inquiry put most of the blame on on the Norwegians, uh, and um, uh, and they had to pay most of the compensation. Um, lots of debate uh, um, since about whose fault it was, and uh, ships generally pass port to port. and Empress was sort of because she was so close to the coastline, was going for a starboard-to-starboard pass. So it's there's still debate there about who made the wrong decision in the fall, a fog. And um, the um, Norwegians, to their credit, um, did most of the initial rescue. They they stood by and as soon as they found her in the fog and pulled what survivors they could from, from the water. Um, but uh, they took the official blame. Still big debate about... Um, uh, who should have uh, made what course adjustment and the interpretation of the, um, the, uh, uh, the whistles in the fog. Um, obviously, uh, most folks will know, uh, this is um, uh, uh, 1914. Um, uh, Empress had a wireless set. Uh, uh, Storstad, the, the cargo ship, did not. So they, their ship's ability to communicate with them was very limited.
1: Well, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, Dan. Thank you very much for sharing it with us all today.
0: Oh, my my pleasure. Uh, Ships always give us these amazing microcosms of their time and societies, and that's the case with Empress.
1: Thank you all so much for listening. Now, don't please just listen to the podcast. Please also check out all of the brilliant video content we've been making. You can find that on YouTube and on Facebook and on our new TikTok account, which is doing very well. Over 700,000 views already. But particularly on YouTube, you'll be able to see um, some wonderful new video content, not least the quite brilliant new films in which we film the world's best ship models using the latest camera equipment. This podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research, so do please take the time to check out everything that both of those venerable institutions have been doing. You can find the Lloyd's Register Foundation's History Centre and Archive at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up to enjoy all of the numerous perks of membership including four copies of the printed Mariner's Mirror Journal every year, online access to over a century's worth of maritime history scholarship, online seminars, and you can even come to dinner on board HMS Victory. What a treat.